0: Hi, Siler again. I think you know what time it is. It's time to sing, people. That's right. Everyone, time to sing. And Mike promised me that uh, if you do a good job, he'll do a solo when we're all done together. So Mike, I hope you're ready. Congregation, let's sing. Here we go. The Minor Prophets song. It's your favorite. Here we go. Do you know the Minor Prophets? Minor Prophets, Minor Prophets. Do you know the Minor Prophets? There's 12 books in all. Hosea and Joel, and Masobadiah, and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Excellent job. All right, Pastor Mike, it's your turn. Here we go. It won't surprise you to hear that I made no such promise to sing a solo, and indeed uh, I sang a solo a couple months ago if you were here, and no one wants to hear that again. So uh, my one response to this video is uh, to start looking for a new student ministries pastor. So perhaps Seiler has less job security than he thinks. So uh, I want to start by talking about a book that came out um, six months or so ago. It was written by Jesse uh, Itzler. He is a serial entrepreneur, relatively young guy, very successful, started numerous companies, including Marquee Jets. His wife started Spanks. Together, they own the Atlanta Falcons. It's a, it's a, they're a high-performing, high-net-worth couple, and Itzler uh, competes in various sporting events, and he, he talks about being in a 100-mile race a while ago. He was one of eight runners that were part of a tag team in this race. And they had brought support. They had, uh, they had tents. They had uh, chefs. They had masseuses. They had all this stuff to compete in this race. And they were running alongside uh, one guy who ran the whole 100 miles by himself with no support and finished about the same time that they did, although he had broken bones in both of his feet during the race, and he, can, and he, he still finished. And Insler was fascinated by this guy because he said, I think I'm sort of a high-performing guy, and yet I'm nothing like that. Clearly there's another gear. I haven't found it. How, how do you do something like that? So he looks this guy up, and uh, eventually <coughs> excuse me, he hires him to come live with him for a month and to train him. So this guy turns out had been a Navy SEAL just out of, uh, just retired. And so he comes and lives with uh, Itzler and his family. And the first day, I'm sure they have a big house, he says, the first day I'm supposed to show up at our at our gym workout room at four in the morning. He says, I get there. And he says, uh, SEAL, and that's what he calls him. He doesn't use his name, and he doesn't say the seal, he just says seal. Seal said, okay, I do 100 pull-ups. And uh, it sort of says, well, I, I, I can't actually do 100 pull-ups. And, uh, and seal said, oh, you don't understand how this works. Do 100 pull-ups. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't ask you for an excuse. Do 100 pull-ups. And he goes, but I, I, I can't. And he goes, do 100 pull-ups. And he said, so it took him two and a half hours, but he eventually got 100 pull-ups in. And then uh, Seal said, okay, we're going to go for a run, 15-mile run, go um, get ready. And so he said, I went upstairs, changed. It was, he because it's winter, it's 15 degrees out. He goes, I come down, I'm bundled to go out on a long run. And he said, in there stands Seal in shorts and a, and a tank top. And I said, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's cold out. He goes, I don't do cold. He goes, but uh, <clears throat> it's 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 fifteen degrees out. You're going to freeze. He goes, I'm fine. He goes, but but it's fifteen degrees. You can't just say that you're not going to do cold. He goes, oh yeah, no, that's I'm 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 fine. You can bundle up if you want to, but I don't I don't need to. So this is uh, you know you read through the book. This is what this guy does, over and over. So. <clears throat> I didn't read the book all the way through, but I love this kind of stuff. I love the grit and gravitas and make it happen and, you know, just keep gutting it out and finding a a way to get things done. If you like that stuff, you will like the book of Joel. Because there's a sense in which Joel says, do 100 pull-ups. Now, it's not what he says, but what he does say, as many of the prophets say, is, okay, um, raise your game. Uh, it's time. Uh, love God. Serve others. Uh, <laughs> Stop being so selfish and hard-hearted, right? You need, to, you need to prioritize your pursuit of God. And he's not particularly interested in a lot of excuses, So we're in the series, 12 Minor Prophets, these are the small books at at the very end of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not written chronologically, and so these books are gathered together because they're short. They're called Minor Prophets, not because they're less important than the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're called Minor Prophets because they're short. And I'm aware that some of you wish that my sermons were a little bit more minor in their uh, delivery, but... Too bad. So, Joel is unique among the miners for a few reasons. First of all, he he is one of the prophets that actually does look to the future. Most people, many people think that the prophetic books are all about what's going to happen in the future. Not really. There's less foretelling of the future than there is forthtelling of truth. And so what you mostly get from prophets is, like I said, love God, serve others, right? Don't be hard-hearted, do the right thing. Uh, be generous, don't be so selfish. So that's mostly what you get. Occasionally you do get some foretelling. And you get some foretelling in the book of Joel. Uh, he is going to look ahead and he talks about the day of the Lord. and He talks about things that are, that are going to be happening. Uh, a second reason the book of Joel is, is unique is that we don't really know when it was written Uh, It's hard to date the book, although he quotes from a lot of other prophets, and so we know it has to be after them, after they were written, and so we, we end up pushing it later, probably after the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon, but we're not sure. And the third reason that the book of Joel is unique is that no sin is mentioned that he is calling them out on. It's as if he says, you know what's going wrong, you've read the other prophets, Right there are patterns and habits i don't have to point these out i'm going to talk about what you need to be doing in light of the fact that we continue to see these patterns of wrong choices. so <clears throat> what you get in Joel and by the way it's a hard book to read uh it's written in a poetic fashion and he bounces back and forth between past and present and future and it's it's a tough it's a tough code to crack but when you when you get it, then what you realize is that Joel is saying, um, there's bad things coming. Uh, you You have been doing bad things. Bad things lead to bad things. Bad things are in the pipeline. But if you will repent, if you will turn to God, if you will chase after God, it will be okay for you. Come what may. The bad may still come, but it will be okay with you if you know God. So chapter 1, there's three chapters in the book of Joel. Chapter 1 opens with Joel uh, talking about this day of the Lord, which is sort of symbolic for judgment from God that is coming. And he talks about the day of the Lord looking backwards to the eighth plague that had hit the Egyptians back during the time of Moses. There had been ten plagues. The eighth plague had been a locust invasion. And he talks about that in terms of explaining what is happening to them at that moment because they also are experiencing a similar day of the Lord. So the book of Joel opens, chapter 1, verse 4, with him describing what's going on. The cutting locust, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust have eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust have eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust have eaten. So, the, the Jews are subject to a locust invasion. And, uh, he will go on to say, those that have passed out from drinking too much, you need to wake them up and tell them to start crying because all the crops, all the grapes have been gone. There's no wine coming. And uh, the farmers, you need to say, uh, there's no there's no grain. There's no crop left. There's no crop to eat. There's no crop for, to plant for next year. There's no crop for sacrifices. There, there's, there's nothing to feed the cattle. But it doesn't really matter because there's no water anyway. Because the locusts have taken the water also. And so this is a bad moment that they are in. And uh, I didn't really appreciate... A locust invasion because I'm a, you know, 20th, 21st century suburban guy. I haven't done a locust invasion. Um, but old National Geographic magazines and Google will, you know, clue you in. So here's a picture of a locust. Looks very much like a grasshopper. Uh, there are other locusts that look a little bit more like a grasshopper in uh, battle armor, but they look sort of like this. And uh, here's the two things you need to know about locusts. One is that they eat their weight in food every day. And secondly, they multiply very quickly. So there was a locust invasion in this country in 1915. And um, so the, you read the biology, the biologist reports, and they said just sort of what we got from Joel in, in chapter 1, verse 4. Initially, uh, locust hit and they, they, they hatch and they're like ants and they're eating everything on the ground. And then they start to hop, and they get up a little bit higher, and they start to eat everything that's mid-range. And then they start to fly, and they get into the trees, and they, and they eat everything in the trees. And um, then, he said, after they'd eaten everything outside, like everything outside, they came inside, and they ate all the food, including the curtains, you know, the bedspread, they ate everything. And so, um, then you can see they start to swarm, because they lay lots of eggs. So, when they left, initially, the biologists counted 70,000 eggs per square yard. So then they come back in even bigger numbers. And we got another picture here. Uh, it, it just they, they darken the sky because there are so many of them. So you might be thinking you're having a bad day. You know, your cell phone isn't fully charged and the line of Starbucks is long. And, you know, wow, it's a bad day. So this would be a worse day. Everything, everything, what you eat and what you wear has now been eaten. And you're like, oh my goodness. So uh, Joel talks about the coming day of the Lord. He talks about locusts, but you have to understand, he's not really talking about grasshoppers. He is, and he is talking about judgment and God sending judgment on them. He's also using locust as a metaphor for sin that gets out of control. It multiplies and the downstream just takes over. And so he talks about locust, metaphor for sin, coming judgment, and he says to the people, you need to repent. That's chapter one. Chapter two is sort of more of the same. Another discussion about the day of the Lord, only this time you think Uh, He's talking about locusts, but he's not. He talks about an army too many to number that that, uh, blackens the sky and that destroys everything in its path. That sounds like the locust. But he's actually talking about the Babylonians, and he's not looking backwards. He's talking about a coming judgment by the Babylonians. And uh, then he again calls on people to repent, the famous verse, in uh, in the book of Joel, is chapter two, verse thirteen, where he, where he says, uh, "Rend your heart, not your garments." So in in the Old Testament, when people both when they were mourning, but also when they were when they were repentant, when they were humbling themselves, when they were when they were calling out for God's mercy, they would uh, occasionally say, "I'm going to put on sackcloth." And ashes, and so you would put on this sort of like a gunny sack, uh, that sackcloth, and then you would you would sit in an ash heap and rub ashes in your hair and your beard and all over your face, and you'd sort of you were advertising this humiliation, and you were saying, "This is what my heart actually looks like, and I need mercy and favor and help." And you would often rip; they would rip the sackcloth. And so if you if you heard also blasphemy, you were supposed to rip your clothes and and sort of and 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 to disassociate yourself with that. So what what is happening here is God through Joel says, Look, rend your heart, not your garments. I'm not interested in a show of remorse. I'm not interested in weeping. I'm not interested in theatrics. I'm not interested. I'm interested in repentance, which is a It is a change of direction. So the call to repent is stop going in the wrong direction, stop doing the wrong thing, turn and go in the right direction. And then the rest of the book uh, unfolds in poems. One of the poems, uh, there's three of them, one of the poems uh, looks back to the Exodus and to the golden calf uh, where the Jews melted everything down to a golden calf and began to worship it. But... But Joel says, look, when they repented of that, God was merciful. And he says, God will be merciful. It doesn't matter what you've done, God will be merciful. You can turn to God, he is for you, and he will meet you. So he's, he uses that situation to say, God is merciful if you will repent. If you will turn to him, he will receive you. The second poem is a, is a prophecy about Pentecost. He says there's a day coming when... Uh, when my spirit is not simply going to fill the temple, but it will fill hearts. And that's what happens on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. And then the third poem talks about a coming day when the earth will be restored. So the land has now been decimated, stripped clear by these locusts. He says there's a coming day when, in fact, uh, a new Eden will appear, a new garden, and and God is going to restore things. So... The question when we are doing Bible study is, what does this mean to me? Right. The first question is always, what does it mean? What did the original writer intend the original reader to understand? But then after you understand that, and, and in Joel that's, that takes some work because it's poetic and there's a handful of things going on. Once you understand, this is what the original readers would understand by this. Then the next question is, so how does that apply to me? What do I do with this truth, with this insight? So when you go to Joel, there's there's a handful of things that initially um, emerge. For instance, one of the points that Joel makes is, you may think you have lots of problems. You really only have one. Our problem is that we're not seeking God. So... So Joel talks about a locust invasion. He talks about a Babylonian army coming. He talks about all these different problems. But the solution is always turn to God. <laughs> Your problem is you're not trusting God. Turn to God. So that's a, an idea there. A second idea is that um, much of the time that we suffer, we are suffering because we are downstream of our sin. And our sin sort of swarms and it gets out of control like the locust. And it decimates things. So sin is ultimately self-destructive and stupid behavior. It's not that God came up with an arbitrary list and, and just said, do these things, don't do these things. Now, descriptions of sin is God saying, okay, I created the world. I created the world. It reflects the way my life, my being is ordered, this is the way it's going to work. So if you do these things, it's much more likely to work for you than if you don't. There is the fact that the world is broken, and not all of the suffering that we incur is because of our sin. But a lot of the times that we're suffering, we're suffering because sin is stupid behavior. And it, and it has a really high idiot tax. It never advertises the full uh, cost. It always tries to undersell. It's not going to cost you that much. You could do this, and you're not going to get caught, or it's not going to be that bad. It never advertises the full effect. And if, if we could see, if we had clarity, all, all knowledge, and if we had a heart we could actually perfectly control and perfect willpower, we would never sin because we'd go, well, that's just stupid. We don't want to do that why would I do that why would I, why would I punish myself that way so so one of the things the Book of Joel advertises is that you know sin uh, sin is going to cause us to suffer, and a lot of the suffering that we have is because of bad choices that we've made however there's a third point in the book of Joel which says uh, there are times when what we suffer is god's Judgment. So the downstream effect of sin is sometimes, theologians refer to it as the passive wrath of God. God doesn't intervene. If you, if you cheat on your taxes and you get caught and you get fined and you, or you got to go to jail or whatever happens, God hasn't intervened to zap you and give that penalty. That's just the penalty of the sin. So that's passive wrath of God language. Sometimes, I don't think very often, but sometimes we see, as in the book of Joel, God sends a locust plague. (laughs) And this is not the direct result of the sin that we have done. It is is God intervening. But Joel makes the point, even this is a loving act of God. Because, Because the Jews were headed in the wrong direction. And he's like, I'm going to stop you. It's like parents stopping the three-year-old that keeps wanting to run down the driveway and into the street. He says, no, I'm, I'm not going to let you do that. I love you too much. So I am going to, I'm going to discipline you to keep you from doing this. You don't like it, but it is actually a loving act. So we get this and and other things in In the book of Joel. I just pause for a second here and and ask you do you process your life often enough to figure out when you're paying an idiot tax for your sin or when God may be trying to redirect you. I'm not going to claim it's easy to figure this out. Sometimes it's very confusing. But one of the things that we are expected to do is to reflect and to process and to listen to God and to pray and and to to be aware so that that we can learn some things and make better choices. If I was going to single out a couple action items from the book of Joel, I would actually go in a slightly different direction. There's two that I think uh, are setups for us to lean into. The first one is repentance. So, Joel chapter 2, verse 13. It's, it's in other places throughout the book of Joel, but the, again, this is, the, this is the money verse. Uh, rend your heart, not your garments. The suggestion is that we are to repent and that there's a way to repent that's wrong as opposed to the way God is expecting us to repent. So um, I suspect that if anybody can repent poorly, it's us, because we live in a culture that we don't really want to ever take responsibility for our actions. Uh, in a litigious culture, people don't want to take responsibility for their actions because they might get sued for their actions, and so there's always a, you know waivers and distancing and all of that. But, but we also live in a culture that doesn't suggest that there are absolutes, right and wrongs, and, uh, and about the best we can get is this famous line by Ron Ziegler, 1973, Richard Nixon's press secretary. He's getting grilled about Watergate, and he makes this line that is just lived on and on. He says, finally, yes, mistakes were made. Okay, so, so it sounds like a concession. Okay, yes, I'll admit, mistakes were made. But not really, okay? Saying mistakes were made isn't saying I made mistakes, and it's not saying, oh, I sinned, right? It's saying mistakes were made. Maybe by me, I'm not going to admit that, and I'm certainly not going to say that the mistakes that I made were sin. Repentance is not saying mistakes were made. Repentance is owning this. So There's other things we can say about repentance. First of all, it's it's a big deal. Uh, The first word that Jesus gives us um, in the New Testament is repent. It's the first thing we hear from Jesus, repent. Uh, Martin Luther, the first of the 95 theses that he nailed on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, was uh, repentance is the entire Christian life. All of the Christian life is one of repentance. He's saying this is not a one-time activity. It is a posture that we adopt. It's a posture of humility. Repentance is not being sorry that we got caught. Repentance is not even simply just being sorry for the sin that has happened. Repentance repentance goes beyond that. I was reading a I started thinking about repentance about six months ago because I heard a very powerful sermon out of Psalm 51. And then uh, re- more recently, I was reading a novel, uh, a mystery, in which the, the, the protagonist is, uh, an, is an Anglican priest. And uh, he's trying to figure something out, but in the process of the book, he, uh, he commits adultery. And he goes to his superior to confess this. And his superior prevents him from repenting, and he says, "Look, um, at this moment, you are really sorry that this happened, and you feel poorly about it, and you feel embarrassed, and you feel shame, and you are really worried because you believe that what you have done is is now a, 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 a wedge between you and God, and that God is not going to bless you until you repent." And he said, Yeah, I'm not going to let you do that. He says, because that's you do not fully understand, one, why you did this, but secondly, there's no sense of grieving the fact that you have grieved God. Right? You you see, you're seeing this very selfishly. <laughs> like I committed a sin and now I'm in trouble, and, and this is I, I wanna I wanna be I wanna be right. I want God to look with favor upon me. And 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 the 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 superior, the religious superior says, Look, that's just religion. That's not the gospel. That's not, that's, not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what we preach and proclaim. That's just trying to manipulate God. Okay, I did this, I did this, and so because I did this, I got to do this. But if I go to church, or if I pray, or if I fast, or if I give money, or if I serve, or if I do something, to balance this out, then God will look at me and will be in favor of me again, and he'll bless me. And I want God's blessing, so I'm going I'm to rush to repent. And repentance is not trying to manipulate God. And repentance is, is has in it an awareness of our sin and the effect of our sin. So... Tim Keller has been writing about repentance um, for some time, and he points out that, that religious repentance is something that we generally don't like to do. It's, it, it's, it's, it forces us to sort of knuckle under. It forces us to admit our shortfall. It forces us to, to, to try and placate, to pay a penalty, to do something to get right with God. And he said, true repentance, gospel-centered repentance is 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 everything that is involved in turning back to God and leaning into God and being reminded that God is a God of grace and a God of love and that that he knew the worst about me and has already declared his love for me so i'm not i'm not hiding something from God And hoping that God doesn't know this or somehow trying to make up for it. God knows the worst about me. But God is gracious and merciful and loving. And and when I turn back to God and I lean into that grace and mercy and love, right? There's joy there. There's there's relief there. And and so repentance is, is a posture that we adopt to stay in that space of knowing and leaning into God's love. So, we are called to a posture of repentance. Additionally, the book of Joel calls us to fast. Now, repentance, fasting, and we could add other things, Bible study, prayer, going to church, serving. There's a whole number of things that we do that are spiritual practices or habits or disciplines that, um, that position us, it, it, there, it, is, it is an effort to control the things that we can control, to position us to be in the right space humbly and spiritually before God so that God will do the things that we can't do. So I cannot control my heart. I cannot, uh, I cannot will myself to not get angry. I can work hard to not show you when I'm angry. Uh, I cannot will myself to be more patient. I can choose to act in ways that are more patient. But I can't actually change my heart. I can't do that. It's broken at a at way too profound of a level. But I, there are things I can control. So um, I can control how I spend my time. I can control something like fasting. And fasting. I'm not manipulating God, and this is, so people, it is so easy with these spiritual habits to forget the gospel and to, to say, okay, I'm earning points, I'm going to pray, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm, I'm, I'm earning points with God for all these things I've done. God, look at me, how good I am. No, no, that's, that's religion. But I can approach God in a position of humility and do something like a fast. And by the way, when I talk about a fast, I'm talking about a a spiritual exercise, not principally a physical exercise. So when I went online to start reading up on fasting, just to see what was out there uh, recently. Uh, So this past week, I'm just reading the new stuff on fasting. I was amazed at how much stuff there was. Books and articles and TED Talks and everything on fasting. But it's all about the physical benefits of fasting. Right, the physical benefits of not eating food, of, of, of having some sort of cleanse, right? Of purging yourself, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm not a doctor. I suspect it makes sense to me that eating less would be a good thing. But I'm not talking about the physical benefits of fasting. I'm talking about the Old Testament, New Testament practice of giving something up for some period of time. Generally, it's food, it could be technology, it could be TV, it could be a number of things. Giving something up for a, for a specific period of time. And the focus is not on not eating. The focus is on using that time to seek God more intentionally and to be more drawn into his presence. And, and, to, and to remind ourselves, I'm, I'm declaring by not eating food. I'm declaring, God, I need you more than I need food. And I am declaring that I, I do need food. I'm dependent upon you for food, and I, I, I you are you are the creator. I am a creature. I am a dependent being, and I am declaring that that I need you. I am broken. I I am humbling myself. I am coming in a position of weakness to get more of you because that's ultimately what I need. And so, if you fast, um, you would. Pick a, a meal, or it could be longer, but if you've not fasted, just pick a meal. And so lunch, you say, I'm not going to eat lunch. And it's not that then you just keep working through lunch, but you would set that time aside to, to to pray, to read the Bible, to reflect. And then throughout the course of the afternoon, when you are hungry, and you have, you know, 30 different times you go, I'm hungry, I'm going to go get something to eat. Oh, no. I'm I'm fasting. That hunger pang reminds me to pray and to say, God, (laughs) I actually am reminded now again that I need you more than I need food. And and I am coming before you in this this posture of humility to ask you to fill me and change me and to make me more like Christ. So we get called in the book of Joel— uh, several times in the verse just prior to what I've said is the marquee verse in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, rend your heart, not your garment. He says, Even now, this is the Lord speaking, even now, return to me with all your heart with fasting. So I want to issue a, a suggestion, a, a call to repentance as a posture in life. I want to issue a call to fast. So I'm going to suggest. Thursday at lunch. So we've got a big weekend coming up. We've got a, hopefully you've heard about it. Next week, we're doing a big service and there's all kinds of things. It's not just that it's at the Genesee Theater, we're looking at the future and we're, we're, so we are, we are praying, we are, we are fasting, we're asking for God's direction in our life and God's direction for the church. And so I want to suggest that this Thursday, I'm challenging you this Thursday to skip lunch and pray and fast. During that time. And then there's one other thing that I'm going to add. So, growing out of Joel is repentance and fasting. I'm going to add a, a call to those of you who have not been baptized to be baptized. Uh, and I'm going to go Navy SEAL on you here for just a second. So, baptism is a, one of the sacred activities, one of the sacraments of the church. And uh, it is not found in the book of Joel, but it's found, it's the way the, the gospel's open with John the Baptist. And then Jesus' public ministry is sort of bookended by... Um baptism. So he is baptized. He goes out to the river Jordan is baptized by John the Baptist. That's the Holy Spirit, fall, you know, descends upon him and God the Father speaks to him. That's when he starts his ministry. And then at the very end of his ministry, just before he ascends into heaven, after his death and resurrection, he commissions us. He commissions the church and he says, go therefore and make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So, Baptism is something Jesus calls on us to do, and so I'm just going to say: if you are a Christ follower and you've not been baptized, um, that doesn't work. There's there's really no category for that in the New Testament. People who identify with Christ have publicly identified with Him in baptism, and it's not that the the act of baptism actually makes us a Christian. It's not that the water washes off our sin. But we, we symbolically wash off our sin. We symbolically go under the water and dying with Christ. We identify with him then in his resurrection coming out of the water. And this is something Jesus tells us to do. So, like, like seal, uh, it's not do 90 pull ups, it's get baptized and then I occasionally hear, well, it's not at a convenient time, or I really don't look good with wet hair, or, you know, whatever. I just like, no, stop it. I'm not, we're not having this conversation. This isn't an optional conversation. This is, if you are a Christ follower, get baptized. So we have baptism coming up February 25th, so a month from now. And you can sign up today uh, to be Baptized. On February 25th. It's one of the two big baptisms we do. We do others, but it's one of the two big baptisms we do. So, um, the book of Joel says, uh, look, raise your game. (laughs) We can't control a lot of things, but there are things that we can control. There are things that we can do. So he says, prioritize God. Repent. Have a posture of repentance. Fast. And I'm saying, yeah, and follow Christ. Lean into the things that Jesus has given us. So, um, well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that, that, uh, that we can come with a gospel-informed repentance to remind ourselves of your grace, your, your love, your care for us. You know the worst about us. Help us face the worst about ourselves and to adopt a posture of humility and dependence. I pray that you would guide us individually this week, especially Thursday. pray that you would guide us and direct us as a church as we come uh, into this new season. Um, Father, I pray that um, that those who are sitting on some sort of proverbial fence trying to decide whether or not uh, they're going to be a Christ follower, that this call to baptism would, uh, would be the right time to say, okay, I'm in. And uh, you would guide them to that direction. Bring them to yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.